Welcome everybody to the Double Dan Podcast Episode 4. In this episode, it's going to be a little bit different as we don't have Dan James on the line as he couldn't make it. So we're going to take a break from our usual format in following our timeline and take this opportunity to get to know Kim Hagen a little bit better. In the short time our podcast has been released, Kim has certainly become a fan favorite with some of the feedback that I've been getting has made out even from my brother that Kim is the secret weapon to the team. I've got Kim on the line. You there, Kim? Hey, mate. I can't believe it. Uh, your brother's abandoned you and gone on my side. I love it. Yes, he's certainly. He reckons in the whole household. And and my brother's not horsey for all you listeners out there. And uh, he's enjoying the podcast. And uh, and he reckons he just loves Kim's special comments. <laughs> special inverted commas or just special? Yeah, uh, I, I might have to clarify that with him. We heard from episode one that you weren't born into horses, but soon became a lifetime passion of yours. When did you realize you wanted to be a vet? Um, well, I, I didn't um, commit myself overly to school, so I didn't get the mark to get into that and or even into uni. When I left school, I, um, I started actually working in hotels. So I started working in, um, I did a hospitality management uh, degree, uh, one year course, and then um, went and worked at the Observatory Hotel in Sydney. Uh, it was then classified as a six-star hotel, very flat. And um, I was working in oh, various apartments there, and I just got sick of just the mundane day-to-day, and I thought, John, there's more to life. I want to challenge myself. Um, and it came down to an interest in, um, I was very you know, involved with horse and rugby union at the time and riding horses. And physiotherapy interests me as well as veterinary science. And um, looking into them, veterinary science became the, the one that interested me more. And um, so that afternoon, I had a job at the uh, local vet cleaning kennels. And um, my reward for that was I got to uh, watch surgeries that went on later in the, in the morning. And um, then I wrote all those down in a diet and detailed it all and applied as a Category B student next thing I know I got into vet. So what age are we talking about? So I was probably, by the time I got into vet, probably 25. And your original question is, you know, when did I have an interest in horses? The horses kind of came, oh, I was probably, we used to go horse riding down at a farm holiday place when I was kind of 13, 12, 13, 14. And I eventually, I bought a horse down there, my very first horse I bought when I was 15. Um, out of all my little paper run money that I saved up and um, ended up, it, it was a kind of, I see that as a bit of a sliding doors moment in my life was that horse could have been one of those horrible, nasty-ass things that just wants to throw you off and break you every time you go there. But he was the complete opposite. He was just, you could not ride him for six months, go and pick him up in the paddock out of 20 other horses, just ride off in a halter. He was just a kind, really nice horse. So um, yeah, my my family, none of my family are horsey. Mum's got a science background and um, dad's a motoring journalist and so is my brother. Uh, But um, yeah, my interest in horses must be a throwback to some previous generation because uh, yeah that's how it, it stemmed and it just went on from there. Yeah, well that is that is a uh, great story of not only not being born into horses but then getting a passion for horses, getting into vet but then not getting into vet straight after school like most people doing it at 25. I mean that that's got to be pretty hard. I want to know what sort of student was Kim at uni? 
Oh, I was, I was dedicated. I was, I was there for the all-round experience here. And um, I, I firmly believe that DUVAC, study vacation, they called it, the week before exams, they'd give you a whole week off to study. I considered that the important and crucial, if not only time, to do your study for exams. So the rest of the time was heavily involved in socialising and getting a market unit life. Um, you'll find that hard to believe. I understand that, mm-hmm. but it is true. And I ended up becoming the um, the president of the Veterinary Society, the Students' Veterinary Society in uh, in fourth year uni and so I was responsible for putting all the social events on so it was a pretty solid year that year. I I bet you did but I I did say on one of the early episodes that you're the smartest persons I think that's the exact words I don't even know if that's proper English but one of the smartest persons I know and I think that goes to prove that you passed obviously or I'm assuming you did or you're just practicing without a license. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I did get a piece of paper. It's all, all genuine. Right. And then it sounds like you did party pretty hard. And if you're the social social coordinator, so to say, uh, do you think that you were the best at that job the whole time that you were at uni? We, well, yeah, it was it was it was a good time because it was just before the governing body at the uni got really fit on um, students paying bugger all for alcohol and having a really good time, and they started to think, you know, we, we can't really fund these, you know, notorious boozers, and that really kind of kicked in after my year. So our standard was our social events, otherwise known as keg, were um, five dollars, all you could eat, all you could drink, um, which is yeah, it's a little bit excessive for some students, but on the whole, we kind of struggled by and. Uh, um, a big, big night. If we got a thing there, like we had um, one of the annual things is beer and pies. Well, I made it beer, pies and bulls. So we got a few mechanical bulls in and got drunk and fell around falling off mechanical bulls. That was a big event because we had special um, special equipment and special um, uh, event status. And um, that was a $10 night, all you could eat, all you could drink. So yeah, that, that was pretty much the budget we worked on. Sounds pretty solid. And I think we've talked about this in the past and for the Australian listeners, this will probably make more sense. There's there's a famous television presenter, veterinarian called Dr. Chris Brown. Did did he go <laughs> did he go through uni at the same time? Yeah, so Brownie was in my year at uni. Did he participate? Um, just firstly, sorry to cut you off. Did he participate in that in your in your uh, buck and bulls and and your and your socialising? Yep, yep. He was he was one of the larrikins of the year. He was kind of a, a bit of a college boy um, larrikin. So he was a bit preppy. kind of well, yeah, a bit preppy. He was, he was in with the college boys a lot, so they had their own fun a lot of times. He'd always come out well, and um, the vet society, the vet, um, the whole um, university down at Sydney Uni was separate from almost the rest of Sydney Uni. So the social events kind of just flowed easily, and everybody in vet got involved. And, and Brandon was no different. In fact, um, far more the larrikin at uni than he is or ever has been on TV um, and I probably reserve any major stories that I've got about him for around a campfire one-on-one. No, that's what I was no. – my next question was I want some dirt. <laughs> Let's get this podcast to a whole new level and Chris Brown is quite <laughs> famous in uh, Australian television, Dr. Chris Brown. Um, just give me some little bit of juice about him. Come on. Well, I'll give you a clue, and I think you just said it in that question. So we'll just leave it at that. All right, then, fine. I'll take it from there. We'll move on. <laughs> it's a cryptic answer to a cryptic kind Maybe uh, as this podcast um, goes on down the ways a little bit, we might have to re-interview and ask this question a little bit later on and see if we can get a little bit more information out of Mr. Kim Hagen. We're expecting a lot out of this interview, Kim, so I want you to give me something. This next question might incriminate yourself. 
What's the worst thing that has ever happened to you while practicing as a vet? I mean, I've got a lot of stories and um, some funny and some um, pretty stupid and fine, but I suppose the worst things that have happened to me have been involved uh, with physical injury and um, a bit like you in the horse game, um, working around large animals, it's a good way to get bashed up if you're not paying attention. Um, one day I do recall, I was, um, here's that word again, semen testing a bull. Um, and for those who don't know how we semen test bulls, an electro ejaculator up there, uh, backside. Oh my and God. we, yeah. It, it's pretty wild stuff. Anyway, this Santa Gertrude bull, he didn't quite like what I was doing. That's probably a bit of an understatement. Anyway, he has, I've kind of opened the bottom gate to the crush. So the bull's caught in the head bale, the back gate closed, the top gate is closed on his near side on the left side. And I've opened the bottom gate so I can get access to get sample. And he has, as I've kneeled down, he has jumped in the air, kicked out four, four feet out sideways. He had a chainsaw as a, um, as a mentor, I'm sure. He broke the top gate, which flung around above my head. Head, missed my head by must have been centimeter if it's not less. It hit the, the crush so hard it broke the handle off the gate off the crush and the bull fell down with front legs just to my left and back legs just to my right and I got jumped out of the way. It was just the perfect timing that my head hadn't been opened up like can and I didn't get killed. So um, I did have another day that a bull did get me properly um, when I was trying to stick a, a copper log pole in front of him to kind of block him up and he was about a 900 kilo Brahmin and he hit the pole and and flung me backwards. I probably hit the ground about four or five metres further back in a crumpled wreck. But the um, the owners thought it was quite funny, but they were kind of saying, say they would call it chopper. But um, hardy as I am, I peeled myself up off all and then just kept going. But um, that's the way it kind of goes, isn't it? In, in our game, you just kind of get bashed and go on. With well, it. I'm not too sure if I, if you could throw me in that uh, in that situation that I'll do the same thing. I have I have had a chopper ride before. I've been airlifted out, but I was unconscious at the time so I didn't get to remember it um, my, my stepmom was there and she got to take a photo because she knew that I'd want to see that I, that I went in the chopper um, but yeah I definitely don't know if I'd be as tough as you when it comes to getting knocked down by a bull and for the listeners when we if you don't know who Kim Hagen is he's a pretty solid dude so when he's talking about getting flung around dare say he got hit with a fair bit of of an impact to say the least yeah it was a big <laughs> I've had other days, you know, where you kind of get a bit complacent. Um, we've done surgery on a mare, and um, my boss, my long boss, Andrew Bennett, he still laughs about this. I, um, I'd done abdominal surgery on her, and he'd done the anesthetic. And we'd finished it, and she's lying on her side, and I just thought, oh, there's just a little bit of kind of, uh, kind of, you know, a bit of blood there just near the wound. I'd just give that a quick wipe, and of course, stepped into the wrong zone. And this girl was less anesthetized than I thought, and she's hit me. The first time knocked me off my feet. The second time sat me out, probably a meter out the back, and then the third time kicked me another two meters out the back. So, and the sympathy was uh, pretty thin on the ground, really. My boss was just uh, laughing and saying words to the effect of, "What bloody idiot would do that?" Um, yeah. So, thanks very much. Bobby. Yeah, thanks, thanks, mate. I would say to him, yeah. "Good boss that was." But uh, it yeah. sort of reminds me of a story going back to Heath Harris, who we're going to have. Just, I think he's going to feature in literally every episode we probably do 
for, for the first 20 or so. Uh, he was telling a story when he was uh, training some camels and horses uh, in, an, in an Arabic country somewhere there in the Emirates. And uh, he got the job to transport a tiger for, for some prince. So so the vet, yeah, this is, this is he, uh, we have to get him on to tell the full stories of some of these because it's obviously only from what I can remember. But they've tranquilized this this uh, tiger and and they've and they've told Heath that you know it's it's good to go and you'll get there and he had to go to some hotel to meet this prince and and it was like it was a fair drive so they're getting pretty close to to the hotel and they rock up uh, to a set of traffic lights and then away the car next next door is sort of like taking a fair bit of interest in in Heath's car and Heath's sort of looking across and you know sort of wondering why they are sort of staring because this big cat is knocked out in on the back seat and why Heath is looking at the car next to him looking at him a tiger paw goes on the shoulder of Heath in the driving and the driving <laughs> seat as this cat started to wake up so oh. Heath is like freaked out a little bit but he's got somebody traveling with him and they've and the vet has given him some extra tranquilizer so he's yelling the vet wasn't even there. no 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 vet the vet had done this um you know pre-leaving and well, yeah so, so yeah so then the um passenger he's yelling at him he's yelling at him to to get the get the rest of the trank into this tiger and anyway it all gets done no dramas about that and then he's got to go meet this prince in this hotel and he has to t- take this sleeping tiger and drag it into the hotel and he's in the lobby waiting for this prince with this drugged out tiger and and i can't remember how it ends he, he i was just freaked out at the part of just traveling with it and and uh and having the tiger wake up at a set of traffic lights that we'll have to get him on the episode to, to find out what happened to the to the tiger after he uh, met the prince, whether he woke up again in the in the hotel or not. But um, but Heath's got like a thousand stories like that. We actually had a day at the, when I was working at the coast. At, um, we had a guy who used to bring in snakes all the time, and um, he was he was a pretty you know pretty capable snake handler. And he's brought in this box, and he actually worked for National Parks and Wildlife. And he brought in this box with holes punched in the top, so it's obviously got a snake, and it taped close. Like there's about ten bits of um, of uh, duct tape around this box. And it, like a plastic plush box, and he um, he put it down on the table, and he walked over to me, and, and we'd often get making that you know they've got a skin condition or they've got a you know a bit of a wound that needs healing, and um and we'd do whatever needed as a bit of a thing for, for his passion for the national park and wildlife. Anyway, he puts this thing down on the table, and he goes, "Before we go any further, I have phoned the hospital, and they have anti venom on hand." I'm like, oh, "Perfect. What have we got?" So he cuts away the tape, opens the box, and pulls out a mature female death adder on the table. So it's probably uh, would have been 40, 45 centimetres long and big fat belly thing. And what had happened was he was playing pool with a bloke at a pub and somebody thought it'd be funny. They ran into the pub and they threw the death adder underneath the pool table. And the guy was playing pool again, smacked it in the mouth or smacked it on the head with the pool cue and with a good intention of finishing its days right then and there. And the guy obviously playing pool with him said, that's a protected animal. And, and he scooped it up after you know everybody scattered out of the pub. And he scooped it up in the box and brought it into and it had been split. The guy hit it fair in the side of the mouth, then slipped from the side of it now to kind of, you know, an inch or two behind its head. And he said, we just need to stitch it up and we can let it go. And I was like, oh, that's all. Don't worry. So, <laughs> so we went about stitching up a death adder. Um, stitched it all back together. And the irony of the situation was we had a guy who was then released down at a, a, a place near or Roland Plains on the mid-north coast. And it was about a week later that there was a cattle farmer who lost his prize bulls next night. And we were still to this day a little bit quizzical as to whether I possibly 
probably contributed to the murder of two innocent bulls. Saving a, a death out of Yeah, well, better you than Pia. So so for those listeners, Pia, yeah, Pia, Pia is my wife and she's also a veterinarian and she despises snakes. Most reptiles, <laughs> she, she can't handle even looking at a picture of a, of a snake. She won't do that. And I think that is her biggest fear as a practicing vet would be somebody bringing in any snake, let alone a death adder. <laughs> There'd be no way that she would see that. She would be, no, nah, take it to the next clinic. Yeah, well, the, the, boss, the boss left. As soon as he heard of death adder, he left me. He was like, you're an idiot. And I said, well, the guy's pretty snake handling. He goes, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. And he just, he just punted me. He was, you're an idiot. You're crazy. This is against my OHNF uh, policies. <laughs> anyway. So moving on from the veterinarian side of things, we're going to get into the horse side of things. So when Dan and I first met you, you were actually into Arabians of all horses and into endurance. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, uh, through university, I got involved with a uh, number of different endurance rides as a um, you know an assistant um, student vet, and um, through there, just um, I already had friends that were involved with with endurance, and through there, I actually, um, I grew a bit of a passion for the whole sport. Um, really good family sport, getting out and about on the really awesome trails and, and um, fantastic scenery and and um, great riding. Um, so I got involved initially as a and then um, rode various endurance rides and then um, as it went down the trail I met my, my 2D wife uh, through the endurance world and um, we actually uh, we got engaged at an endurance ride we go to every, every year called the 400 it was a 400 kilometre uh, marathon called the Shazada um, so yeah it, look it's a, it's a fantastic sport that um, uh, we could you know, get the whole family as, as our family evolved um, the whole family could be involved with and um, yeah Kim and I my wife Kim as well uh, had, a, had a great passion to the and still do we just like, we don't um, do much these days you introduced your wife in that story and I refer to her as Mrs. Kim so for the listeners yep. we've got Kim the husband and Kim the wife what yep. is so we've got what is the odds of that yeah well as, as my MP and good mate said at the wedding said you know I never dated a girl called Andrew <laughs> uh, but the odds are clean but um, don't make um, you know, bank problems very easy they say Kim Hagen we've got down at the and the wife says, no, so I'm Kim Hagen. And they go, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, the fact that she often used my birthday is by the by. But, um, yeah, we've, we've been called the KI and the KY, um, Kim, Kim, Shim, Kim, uh, Kim and Kim X, uh, Mickey and Mrs. Kim. There's, there's a bunch of them. We love, we love them. them all. It took a lot of restraint not calling the kids Kim, Kim and Kim, or even just as a middle name. We thought that might have been yeah, a really good joke for a very short period of time. <laughs> it would absolutely <laughs> hilarious. But when you obviously met – this is something that I don't know. Like you've, so you, you've told me that you've met Mrs. Kim at an endurance ride. Yep. And so obviously you fancied her. And then did you just think that did, at all were you like, well, we've got the same name. I mean, is this going to be weird or not weird? Like, did that come up at all in your mind? Oh, it was the, the, the centerpiece for all jokes for about the next 10 years. So, yeah, it came up in our mind. Um, in fact, there's quite a music video somewhere out there. It's not on, on any socials, but there is an old video of the old camera um, from a family member where he's given a fairly good David Attenborough um, of the making patterns of a kink. And uh, he's, he's tracked us to our kink um, where an, a, a, an early courting scene may have happened. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a plague occurrence to put up with, but, uh, that's where I go. I'd love to see that video. I really want to see that <laughs> video. Have you still got it? Uh, it's around. It's around. Uh, one night when I'm over at your place, I want to. <laughs> is it VHS? 
Uh, is it digital now? Possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of that era. You, but you, it could be very early digital, but it is, yeah, probably VHS. So how long have you been with Mrs. Kim for? Oh, you get me into trouble. It's uh, around right about 2003. I think we, anyway, we got married about 2003. And when did you and, graduate? Uh, 2001. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we uh, uh, then she came over and lived with me. We were, I was working at Kemp Farm, and we lived there till 2007, and then came over back over the hill to the west, and we moved back back to her hometown or virtually her hometown of Manila, and um, we uh, bought into the Manila Barber and Binger Vet Clinic there, and we worked there for, for 11 years, and sold out of that um, oh, just over a year ago, I suppose, a year and a half ago. Two Ago almost. Correct. Time gets away. Now we're in the COVID-19. It's sort of time is almost irrelevant at the moment with, exactly. with the lockdown. Who knows what day and where it is and where we are. And I've been listening to some other podcasts and a lot of the podcasts now are sort of being released um, where they've recorded them in lockdown. And and that seems to be something that uh, is is pretty universal where everybody's uh, almost unaware of what time is and, and there's access to a lot of people out there because a lot of people are at home. Moving on though, we're going to talk a little bit more about this endurance stuff. I want to know a story. Give me something. We're big on stories here at the Double Dance Podcast, and that's something that's been the feedback that I've received has been, um, I guess, you know, a part of uh, the the podcast that people enjoy is like getting some stories. And I know you're going to have a few. You do some entertainment at these things, and and that's what I've heard. As well as you've obviously ridden in the in the endurance, and then you've also vetted at the endurance. So give me a story. What is it? What comes to mind? Okay, all right. Well, the one that comes to mind actually involves, I was betting at this event and there was a real character there called Alwyn Turenby. And some of the listeners may actually know of him. He's actually written a book um, and the name eludes me. Uh, but he died a couple of years ago. Anyway, in this endurance ride, he would have been probably 85 or 88 when he was doing the 400-kilometer marathon endurance ride. And gives you an idea, he was basically a bit Dan Jones. He was born on a horse and he's basically died on a horse and he has an amazing series of stories in between. Anyway, he's ridden the first three days. So you do 80 k's a day, Monday to Friday, 80 k's a day, a hard ride, a lot of hills, a lot of um, very steep hills and scrubby kind of going and then you might open up and get a bit of good going. And um, But a lot, a pretty hard riding and this guy was just a larrikin. Anyway, he's done three days riding and he came back to camp and his face was just bloodsucked. He, he, he had teeth missing and he was just and he actually, his tongue was split in half. He, he looked like a snake. His tongue was split in half from probably two centimetres. And I was like, oh, well, that's a pretty serious thing. What happened? And he said, well, you know that trail where it goes out across that bridge there and kind of winds and meanders there for a bit and then get up past that thing and there's, there's, a, there's a small fern on the right-hand side that kind of disguises a large rock. And I said, mate, I can't say that I know of it. He said, no, neither did I. But I <laughs> And he said, and, and, and he, said, he said, he just tripped over this face painted straight into a rock. And somebody said to him, kind of implying, you know, did you have false teeth? Somebody said to him, hey, were, were they your teeth? And he said, what? Well, well yes, they were my teeth. 
I can't help but think of them out there all alone on their first night by themselves after 88 years with me. Those poor little teeth. <laughs> oh, the hell of a character. He was kind of like that. He had got into the Tom Quilty uh, uh, National, which is the national championship, 160 kilometers in a day. It was put together by RMM and Tom Quilty, obviously. And uh, he got into the top 10, and it was time for the fittest horse work. Uh, he's going to he's gonna ride, and he's going to show how his horse recovered from the big day before. And the vet came up and said, we want you to do a figure of eight trotter and a figure of eight chanted, and, and uh, we'd like you to do a uh, stock and a rein back, and um, then you, and he went, right, and promptly got on his horse and just galloped past them all, just yeehawing, just couldn't care less what they thought. <laughs> he was just going to have fun. So yeah, just a great character, and that's the kind of thing that really drives us into endurance and, and the passion with endurance. So these kind of characters appeared everywhere. Um, uh, good old Bushies all the way through to all right. Well, that leads me to the next thing, then. If it's so good, what got you out of it? Um, I suppose I was seeking um, uh, a next level of horseship. Um, I think endurance riders are very good at looking after their horses from a metabolic um, point of view. They're very aware of how their horses are coping with the exercise and the, and the strenuous um, work they're putting through them. But I think at the end of the day, you can just sit there and you don't need to be the greatest horseman and, and rider to achieve necessarily. Well, that would obviously help. Um, and that's probably true of a lot of disciplines. But I had more of a passion yet to kind of, you know, understanding horses and horsemanship and, and trying to improve my horsemanship. And I found that, um, you know, um, kind of getting involved with you guys, um, with the Dan, um, really kind of helped nourish that, that hunger. And um, and so that's where I kind of started getting more into the Australian stock horse, quarter horse breeds and um, enjoying so it. So that's, that's what's going to be my next question was for the listeners out there that um, might not know that, I, that I'm a, both Pierre and I are breeders of Australian stock horses and we've got a strong influence of, of quarters through our um, bloodlines and, and then I was going to say well it looks like that you've crossed over to the stock horse side of things what what brought you into the stock horse other than obviously Dan and I what brought you over to the Australian stock horses outside of the Arabians that you were dealing with the endurance yeah look we had um, our endurance horse were all stock horse Arab. so we already had a bit of a stock horse background that we liked the kind of toughness of the stock horse that it brought to endurance riding horses um, so the Arabs have great um, you know met, met metabolism and, and great metabolic and the ability to, to work for long periods of time um, but we found you know that putting a, a cross of stock horse through them actually gave them the toughness too where they were sound as well that they, you know, they didn't give up with um, you know small bits of discomfort here and there they just tough it out um, so we've always had that affinity for the stock horse um, and quarter horse breed and I suppose the um, the nature of, of that stock horse quarter horse cross um, is largely um, what I find really enjoyable about doing liberty work and doing um, you know various horsemanship um, and shows and stuff like that I find their, their nature and their temperament um, suits it really well so therefore you've, you've come out of the endurance we've gone into the Australian stock horses what's your ambitions what's left what's where do you want to get to? You've not born into horses and then you've found your way into them and then you've ended up finding not only is it a passion, but it's a career. You've gone into veterinarian and, and obviously through some of these veterinarian stories, we've found out that you've not only been in, in horses, um, but obviously cattle and we even talked about reptiles and, and then I would assume small animals and, and now you just specialize in in equestrian veterinarian. Um, what's left? What's what, what ambitions does Kim have? Hagen have where are you going with this 
Um, I suppose it's, you know, it's a journey. It's a journey. Thanks, dude. Warwick Schiller. Uh, no, hey, I mean, sponsored this. Yeah. <laughs> this question is sponsored by Warwick Schiller. Yeah, no, I um, I suppose you just want to go further. I, I enjoy um, BT's, um horsemanship, and we um, we often kind of get um, formal gatherings, or sometimes we do kid clinics and and um, teach kids, you know, how to enjoy horses through horsemanship by understanding them better and being able to kind of get tricks up going with their horse and having a bit of fun that way. Um, yeah, we, you know, where do we want to go with it? Um, just continue to kind of at the moment enjoy what we're doing. We through the veterinary work, I'm really enjoying um, the reproduction and the dentistry that we do with horses at the moment and um, I'm enjoying watching our kids really you know flourish and thrive and survive on horses that um, you know they're now getting a real interest in training not just riding so yeah to be continued so they say all right this is going to be the last question before we wrap it up you've been performing with us now for for a fair while of time and also doing your own equine entertainment and we like funny stories so tell me what what's the funny Funniest thing that's ever happened to you while performing, whether it's with us or out there by yourself. Maybe, maybe it wasn't. So I, I, um, I said to him, my wife, that we were going to have this podcast, and and she said, oh, so you'll, you'll probably get asked what's funny in your act, that you know, funny stories. And I said, yeah, you'll probably ask that. And um, she said, it's not very funny when things don't go right. You're kind of that busy concentrating on how we're going to get out of this when you've got a free horse or you're riding one without a bridle or something silly. But um, so the, the thing that probably stands out in my mind as one of the funnier things that happened probably more for you oh thanks thanks than me mate. was yeah, it was funnier for you oh there's two stories actually one was when we were well, we both happened when we were down doing the Arab National last year before Tom was born so yeah, so um, the first was uh, one that I've done myself first, and um, we grabbed some lunch um, from <laughs> from KFC, I think my memory serves me, and or Macca's. Anyway, we, we kind of saw a park adjoining the um, fast food outlet, and we thought we'd just go down there and have a bit of feed. And it had two zip lines, um, from, and it started from a little kind of, I wouldn't call it a tower, but it was it was like a little a pontoon, a little podium yeah, up high. Was- so it's probably say say three meters off yeah, the ground. Yeah, I would have said a good. Yep. And you, yep. Yeah, you, you climb up there and you sit on this little zip attached to the um, to the top thing with a running wheel and you zip line down the end and all sorts of fun. Lovely, lovely, lovely. And I said to Pierce, hey, I'm going to see kids a thing or two. There's a few kids there at park and uh, thought I'd go up and have a little zip line. And um, there was a kid getting ready on the one next. And we hadn't been drinking. Like, this was this was just a straight out lack of coordination that let me down here. Lack of planning, lack of coordination, lack of intelligence, lack of foresight. You name it, it all happened. Um, so I I sit down on this kid and I'm looking at this kid who's just launched off and I'm thinking uh, I'm moderately competitive and I thought oh, I'm beat this stuck at the end so I've grabbed hold there were two kind of bars one on either side of where you sat down on this um, zip line and I've grabbed both hands one on each bar and I pull as hard as I can get going and then reach forward to try and grab the, the bar that was between my legs and miss it all ends up so I'm now my ass is going along the zip line at good speed my body's pretty much stayed where it is and I'm trying to grasp I realised I've lost. I'm gone. So now I'm in a three metre free fall, and I've kind of half slipped onto it, and I have just crashed to the ground. And it's just a miracle of nature that I haven't broken the neck. So- 
and I'm just a crumpled wreck. I on want the to brain. cut in here because it was one of my. Oh, I talked about regrets in the last episode. My, my regret was that we didn't celebrate the the naming of the Double Dan Horsemanship from Heath Harris. My my other regret was I didn't film this because this thing would have gone viral like no one else would have believed. I mean, it would have been out in every fail website tv show it was up there with it was it was right out there so just so i can just clarify for the for the listeners out there so he's sitting up there the kid that he's talking about that's on the zip line next to him has no idea that they're in any sort of race he's just a stranger and so he he was just going to be a loser. But well, maybe not. Out. So he pushes off. So Kim's <laughs> sitting down on this disc. It's just a big disc and he goes to push off with both hands. And I remember seeing it going, what is he thinking? You're supposed to be holding on. And so as the disc takes off, he's like grabbed for it and just grabbed nothing but air. And I could see his face like what you just mentioned, you, that you realize that this isn't going to end well, that his legs now no. have gone and his body's left to catch up. And he's then landed, he's on flat on his back and all the wind that you've had in like I landed flat on my head. You landed on your back slash neck slash head. All the wind got taken out of you and you were you were not looking good. And we're in Sydney and in a suburb of Sydney and the whole park, it just seemed like they vacated. Like nobody cared that you hurt yourself, but they knew that you were hurt and they didn't want to hang around to see how bad. Everybody just vanished and I'm laughing. I feel bad, but I'm just like, I know you're not dead and I'm laughing and I'm and I'm disappointed that I didn't video and I've come over to you. And I think the first thing I said was like, what were you thinking? It was one of the. Yeah, you said, what was going through your mind? And, and I said, <laughs> I said, wood chip love. <laughs> so those wood chips was his landing. And then as we've sort of dusted you off, yep, and we've got you to your feet, you're, you're complaining about having this sore head and you've got this large googie egg is how I can think of it when we were a kid and we'd have a lump on our head forming on your forehead quite quickly, quite rapidly. Red and we're and we're looking at that kind. Of, how is that possible? You landed on the back of your head, your your back, your neck, your back of your head, and we're thinking about in the disc. No, the disc didn't come and get that. And then when I replayed it in my mind, I realised that you hit your back, but your feet kicked you in the head. <laughs> Think about that, listeners. He did a reverse pretzel, was, yeah. and he kicked. There was an extraordinary moment of Nathlair that ended up with me nearly being killed. He kicked himself in the head and gave himself the biggest – I'm glad you brought this story up. I'd forgotten about this. But then we had to go to the show and, you know, we're presenting as the two cowboys presenting a bit of a comedy act and I'm trying to wedge my hat on my head. My, my forehead back loads this massive melon on it. Anyway, so then we later that afternoon, it wasn't much longer before we were doing the show and you're doing that section where they um, they bring out a, a, an unbroken horse and his listeners have probably all seen it sooner or later um, where he does a bit of a kind of desensitizing demo and ends up sitting or standing on the horse, cracking a whip by the end of 45 minutes session and it's really impressive it's really cool so we're at the Arab Nash and Sears has organised a, um, a horse a two year old yep, he's a stallion yep uh, yep, and he, he's largely unhandled. He, you know, he's had a bit of halter breaking, but he's certainly never been ridden. And he's, we're kind of getting ready and getting other horse ordered for other things at the act and um, later on that night. And, and Dan's gone, um, ducked off to the toilet. And the groom who's bringing the, um, um, the you're preparing the, Do the, the, the accent. For the, Do the, the accent. 
<laughs> he comes up and he goes, are you with Mr. Sears? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, my name's Karen, and we're preparing the horse tonight for the um, for the first demo they're doing. And I'm just a little concerned because I want the horse to look, you know, really nice. But um, I just don't want him to be too slippery for Mr. Sears. Do you think I could put a bit of sheen on it? And I said, Karen, my boy. I said, you got that fellow within a, an, an inch of his life. I said, you shine him up like a good old coin. You make him look the real part. Anyway, so Sears, he, he sorts this horse out, and he is proper one. It's got every cleaning product on it that you can imagine. And Sears gets to the end of the act and he's been saying to the, to the audience, oh, they're slippery up here, you know. He gets the act done and he comes out at the end and he said, oh, shit, that bloody horse. It was as slippery as any horse I've ever been on. And I said, well, I may have something to confess. Oh, I was a little bit cranky there. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't too happy and he, he, was, he was a shiny horse to begin with. Like, he was in great condition. It was in show condition. And then to hear that Kim had deliberately made sure that he was as slippery <laughs> as he could be to the point that the Dan James in these demonstrations, um, which I don't do because I just feel like it's just not the right thing to do, but but Dan doesn't mind. He will actually grab the arena sand or the dirt, whatever, whatever it is, the surface of the arena and rub it on top of the horse to take I would have been very disappointed. Well, I don't do it. That. I don't do it. I don't like the look of it. Yeah. It's controversial. As I try to explain to you, it's very important that people realize the real deal. I don't want going out there with some people who on this thing back and, you know, people get the wrong Presentation. Idea. Well, I'm going to let it. I'm going to let our listeners into a little secret about Dan James. Actually, you've just reminded me. You know, one of the other little secrets Mr. Dan James might do before a show if he's got to do a little bit of bareback riding. You might not even know this, Kim. Do you know what he does? No, <laughs> I'm a little nervous, but yeah. So me. he'll get a bit of hairspray and he'll spray it yeah. not only on the horse where he's going to sit, but he'll spray it on the inside of his jeans. So it grabs a little bit of friction, right. a little bit of grip. Yeah. Yes. So there's a little bit of a secret for all you listeners out there. If you've ever seen Dan James riding a horse bareback and bridleless and thought that, man, he's got a good seat. Look at him grip to that horse. That There might be a little bit of help and he's not even on the line to be able to defend himself. Yeah, we haven't done it in a while because um, obviously Dan living in the States and and myself here in Australia and and I probably avoid riding bareback and bridleless at any show, so I haven't had to really worry about it. But (laughs) when we were traveling together, there was always a few cans of hairspray and he would give himself in the inner leg a little bit of a spray and then he would give a little bit of a spray where he was going to sit and uh, and hopefully think that that would add to a bit of grip. Um, Probably... There is, yep. an irony, there is an irony of Dan Jones carrying several cans of hairspray around in his Yeah, again, for the listeners knowing that uh, obviously Dan James doesn't have a lick of hair anymore, that uh, is probably <laughs> a little bit, of, little bit of truth. But I was thinking more so, Kim, that um, it goes to his jodhpur days and not having the sticky bump, jodhpurs. So, oh, yeah. He's probably error. thought, you know, he, he was used to that growing up. Maybe he had a pair of sticky bums and then he thought, well, I don't have sticky bum jeans. That's not a thing. So I might have. The old two-tone job for some. Oh, he would have loved it back in his day up in Baringa getting out there with the, the cowboys and just showing off two-tone bumps. Oh, I bet. I mean, the, the funny thing is, and this isn't again on the run sheet, we're just, we're just spitballing here, that um, there's been a couple of acts that we've done where we've where we've jumped a horse uh, between two horses sitting on a beanbag, and it started back with Bobby, which we talked about in one of the early episodes, the old thoroughbred, and we had him liberty jumping. So I would sit two of my horses on a beanbag and I would send 
send Bobby over this jump at Liberty and he would jump between the two of them. It was a pretty big deal, um, like to the point that I couldn't replicate it now. And uh, and then when when Bobby was retired and then and then he and then he has passed away, we still want to sort of replicate it, but we don't have a Liberty jumping horse. So in other shows, we would get a show jump rider and we would build that act and where they would jump the horses sitting down. And we've done it with like the famous Wilson sisters from New Zealand and a bunch of other performers, um, or, or I should say competitors um, in, in different shows. And there's been a couple of shows where we've used Dan James because of obviously his background being an equestrian rider and in and an eventer and a show jumper. And you know what? He could not get back into Jodhpur's quick enough. Like when we did it, he went shopping immediately, not only got himself an expensive pair of Jodhpur's, but he also got himself an expensive tall boots or long boots. Are they called long boots or tall boots? Tall boots. Which ones are they called? I'm proud to not yeah. know, but that would have tapped your ass a lot. Well, it's just funny that he just took it so serious. So <laughs> I've done a couple of gags where I have had to get into the English gear, but I refuse to buy it because I'm not going to use it. So I just ask people if I can borrow. So I've done I've done the long boots. It's long boots. I've done the long boots. I've done the jodhpurs. I've done all that. And I don't, I'm proud to say I don't own any of it. I've borrowed it. So there is photos out there. With Dan, no, he couldn't because no, he couldn't borrow it. He wanted to go and buy it. And it's with the double Dan money. And the first time it started, was at Equitana and so we're shopping around and those boots and those good jodhpurs they're not cheap yeah, so he goes and purchases and we're like, we're going to do this for one show. Oh, no, no. He's like, we'll use them again. Not only did he get into it and, he, and when he wore them, when he put them on, it was like, oh, no, you know, Dan Steers is making me wear these for an act. But then he would like, after rehearsal, he would not get out of it. He would just stay in it. He loved it and it's making sense. And he would change his shirt. So he'd wear either a polo, like he wouldn't wear a Western long sleeve shirt with his jodhpurs. He would either wear a polo or so he had a t-shirt that was like I think it's Elwood is this like sort of surfy brand, but they had like these um like polo um like polo was in the in the sport polo type t-shirts yeah. you know with the number on them and all that. He'd yeah, wear yeah, that, yeah. and he wouldn't yeah. wear his cowboy hat. He'd get a cap and a pair of sunglasses. <laughs> and for the listeners, if I, I'll put this on the social media, I've got photos of this right where he's getting around and he's as proud as Punch to be in the Jodhpurs. You gotta be careful because there are photos. Oh. I'll put myself I already admitted it that, that I've wore this get up but I will tell you and you know this Kim I don't own any of those attire I borrowed it I didn't go and fork out the money or ask Double Dan to fork out the money yeah, but I mean, Dan James, I mean, you were married at times, so it's easy to go around and, you know, in the, the last few years, Dan's been married as well, but it before, was before that, that yeah. it's a bit. Going around art, borrow so many jobs, I mean, that could be misconstrued. Like. Yeah, whatever. you just, you know as, as much as I do that he wanted to get back into those jodhpurs <laughs> and he wanted it. I'm trying to defend him. Yeah, and he wanted to get the most expensive pair because obviously I don't even know. I can't tell what the difference is, but Jodhpurs range from you know it's like thirty dollars to like four hundred dollars, like. But yeah, and that's where I'm eternally grateful. I've got three boys that are interested in riding wet style rather than English style with million-dollar helmets and million-dollar pants and all the shebang that goes with it. It's crazy. The helmet one's another interesting one because it's obviously how much is your head worth. So as a general, like with camp drafting um, with my father-in-law, is like if, if you were drafting with him, you had to wear a helmet, and the helmets were like, you know, $100, right? And then since then, we moved out on our own camp draft, our camp draft in a cowboy hat. I went to an event 
where it was um, a camp draft, but you had to have a helmet, and I, and I didn't have a helmet with. So it was a, a big uh, equestrian event, and they had all this retail there, but it was it was mostly English. So I started looking for a helmet. I had to buy a helmet, and then I thought, well, I haven't had one for a while, so I'll get 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 a helmet. And they the starting price was like six hundred bucks, and I was just like, nah, I'm not buying a helmet. But at the t- <laughs> but at the time, I was like thinking, well, what is my head worth? And if it was like Pierre or the kids. Not that much. <laughs> yeah, not my head, but I guess <laughs> maybe yours. Yours is a bit smarter than mine, but it's an interesting yeah. topic, the helmet and the price. Like what do you pay? Because obviously there's a standard. Like, there's an Australian standard of, of helmets. Say so the minimum has to be safe, but the minimum might only be $60 where these helmets go into the, you know, yeah. they're, they're over $1,000 for some of these helmets. Don't have airbags. Yeah, I'd only wish. No, I don't think they have airbags. Um, Those vests have airbags. The only funny thing about those vests having airbags is they clip them onto their saddle and where they make a lot of their money is selling the cartridges, which are the CO2 cartridges, because the riders forget. Yeah, and then the horse, they hop off and and then the horse like just runs off because it's scared of the CT (laughs) gas releasing. Well, anyway, Kim. Anyway, Kim, it's going to be a wrap. It's uh, it's been a great makeshift episode, nonetheless. I've enjoyed learning a little bit more about Mr. Kim Hagen, and hopefully, our listeners out there have also enjoyed learning a little bit more about Mr. Kim Hagen, as he is included in this Double Dan podcast. Our next episode is going to be back on track, and we're we're going to look back over 2010, which, in my mind, is when things really start for Double Dan. And I reckon, Kim, that this first episode in 2010 is going to be broken into two parts. It's going to be that big. 2010 is massive. Wow. Okay. So- that's back in one of the earlier episodes, you thought that we met in 2010. I've gone back and done the research. We met in 2012. So we're still, yeah, we're well, still yeah. two years off, I guess, officially meeting you in this timeline. So there's going to be heaps more. You, stories. Don't, even, you don't even recall meeting well, We met you in 2012. Well, no, you met me before that. We'll have to get. But that's another. We'll get there. We'll oh. get there. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to be intrigued to hear that story. That's going to conclude our conversation with Kim Hagen. Back to normal for the next episode. Thank you for listening. Remember, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please share on your socials, subscribe, rate, and review the Double Dance podcast. Until the next episode, stay safe, stay humble.